1: Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be chewing through the latest developments in the coronavirus crisis. Boris Johnson's government struggled this week yet again on testing and Matt Hancock eventually had to make a new pledge of 100,000 tests a week by the end of April. It also came under fire for shortages of ventilators and PPE equipment, which after was forced to make some amendments to his economic packages to help smaller businesses who were feeling left out. And inside government tensions rose as the blame game began over the crisis and who is to blame for the lack of testing. And of course, we forget the Labour leadership contest is almost over too. I'm delighted to be joined remotely of course by our political editor George Parker, Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard and Political Correspondent Laura Hughes. Thank you all for joining. If you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics then do subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning and thank you for sticking with us throughout the coronavirus crisis. We hope the quality is listenable. So let's begin with testing, which has been the issue that has dominated both politically and health-wise in Westminster this week. The UK government has consistently failed to meet its own thresholds for testing NHS workers to see if they do or don't have coronavirus. The government has failed to give an adequate explanation of why it isn't able to meet the testing levels it wants or even the testing levels of other countries such as Germany, which are currently at about 50,000 a day, when the UK is struggling to meet 10,000 a day. So George Park, if you can just begin by giving us the background on this testing crisis here. Why is it so important and why is the government struggling?
2: Well, it's obviously important for two reasons. One is because you need to know um, who's actually got the disease and a lot of the tests, virtually all of the tests at the moment are being deployed in hospitals with people who are being admitted to hospital with very serious symptoms. So you need to know whether they actually have coronavirus or not. Second thing is you need those tests to be applied to frontline NHS staff to make sure that they are free of the disease and can return to work if they've been self-isolating with suspected symptoms And eventually, and this is the dream of people like Jeremy Hunt, the former health secretary, you need tests to roll out as part of a mass community testing programme to help us out of the lockdown. So when the restrictions are lifted, we start to go outside, you can quickly then track down where the disease is, isolate the people, isolate their contacts, and the society and business can then get back to normal. The problem is that Britain is woefully ill-prepared for any of this. At the start of this crisis, the NHS had about 1,500 tests available. And they've been talking for several weeks now about getting up to 10,000 tests, which is a target we've reached this week. But nevertheless, it's still far short, as you said there, Seb, of what Germany is doing and massively short of the amount of testing you need to do if you're ever going to have a mass community testing programme of the kind we saw in South Korea. And Laura Hughes, you've
1: done a lot of digging this week into why the UK is failing here. And there's all sorts of blame games going around in Westminster, which we'll come on to later. But from your perspective, why is this such a problematic issue for the UK? Is it time? Is it approach? Is it the NHS? Is it ministers?
3: Well, I think if we go back, the reason we're so far behind is at the beginning of all of this, there were a lot of countries in Asia who immediately responded to coronavirus as if it was SARS. They saw it as this deadly virus that needed to be eradicated at all costs, whereas British scientists saw it as something more akin to the flu. And there was a sort of feeling, well, there's not a lot you can do here. Until we have a vaccine, a lot of people are going to get it. And that's what this herd immunity idea is. But then what happened was, The scientists working with the government put out this modelling and it basically found that if you allowed for coronavirus to just pass through the population, you'd see a quarter of a million people potentially dying and you would see the NHS crumble. So it didn't make sense anymore. So suddenly the politicians and the scientists went, right, Okay, we do need to do more testing here. We need to do testing because, A, it's really important for NHS workers so they can see if they have it in the here and now and they can get back to work if they don't have it. Because of course, we know that there are a lot of people at home, because they might have it. And that's the government advice. And also, going forward, testing is really important so that you can see how many people have it and where they have it. And that's really the approach of countries like South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, they have really used testing as the central pennant of their strategy for dealing with this problem. But of course, when Britain woke up and realised we needed to do a lot more testing, it was almost too late to get all the swabs and the chemicals that you need to make these tests because the rest of the world was also ordering them. And I think that is why we're on the back foot here. And questions have been asked over the last week. Jeremy Hunt, for example, is one that's been saying to the government that they need to set out what the exit strategy is from this lockdown and what role testing plays in that. And the government have finally said... Okay. yes, no, testing is a big part of this. And that's why we have this 100,000 pledge. And it's both antigen tests, so the tests that you do in the here and now to see if you have it, and also these antibody tests, these blood tests that we still haven't quite developed. We don't know if they work yet. The millions that the government have ordered, they're being tested as we speak. But they'll be part of this 100,000. And again, it's all part of the strategy of trying to get us out of this.
2: Just to pick up on that, there are two other specific problems in the UK. One is that we don't really have a very big... Diagnostics industry, which I think came as a surprise to quite a few of us. You know, we know that we've got a world-class pharmaceutical industry, but we don't have the kind of diagnostics that they have, for example, in Germany. And the second thing is, I think there's been a lot of frustration in ministerial circles at the way that the NHS bureaucracy has handled this, and in particular, Public Health England and its desire to centralise testing in a number of new super labs in places like Milton Keynes and Cheshire and Glasgow, rather than reaching out to many of the private labs that could be doing this work.
1: And I think, Laura, obviously, the government's had a communication issues over this, because I can remember when the head of the WHO came out and said that, you know, you can't fight a fire unless you know where and what it is. And the answer is test, test, test. And you saw health officials and ministers standing at those daily Downing Street press conferences saying, well, in fact, that's general advice for countries who have very different health services to us. This is not necessarily what we're doing. But we did see a sort of almost crashing U-turn this week on this when Matt Hancock, the health secretary who has been in self-isolation for the past week or so due to coronavirus, coming out and saying, look, we have got this wrong. We do need to test more. This is our aim. This is what we're going to achieve. And this is why we're going to do it. It was quite a striking moment to see Matt Hancock speak on Thursday, which, again, it did really feel like another U-turn.
3: It definitely was. And it was actually the first time the government felt they had to come out. And it was like they were almost starting from scratch. So they started explain to the public the difference between these two tests, because I think everyone's become very confused by it. So he was very clear. He said, swab tests, they're the ones for the here and now. Blood tests, they're going to be the ones where you can see if you have had it in the past or not. And then he went back and he said, look, I'm going to level with you. We're not doing as many tests as countries like Germany, for the reasons that George just mentioned. And that was the first time a government minister has actually explained it, because in all these really painful press conferences... Journalists kept saying, Why are Germany so much further ahead than us? Why are we not adopting the approach of countries like South Korea? And to be fair to the government, whilst they've been slow off the mark on this, it is fair to say that Germany started off on a different level to the UK in terms of capacity to make these tests. And it is fair to say that countries like South Korea and Taiwan, who live with the memory of SARS, were also much better prepared to deal with something like this. But We also know from reporting that's come out this week that the government did actually look into its capacity to deal with a pandemic years ago. And there was an understanding and they concluded that we didn't have enough ventilators and that we weren't going to be prepared for it and no action was really taken. There will be lots of retrospective questions asked of the government. But I think there was a turning point this week where they realised that these press conferences were actually looking really bad for ministers because they were not answering journalists' questions about testing. So you suddenly saw the Prime Minister pop out of his self-isolation to try and tell everybody that testing was part of solving the coronavirus puzzle. And then you had Matt Hancock engaging with journalists, taking follow-up questions and explaining everything, I think, in quite a clear way. But crucially, we're still only testing 10,000 people a day under the capacity that we apparently have. Still only tested 5,000 frontline NHS workers in England. That is nothing. Huge questions over how the government are actually going to get to this target of 100,000 tests a day when they said they were working towards 25,000 a day and that hasn't happened yet. They've made this very ambitious promise, but really still questions, I think, unanswered as to how they're actually going to get there.
1: Because, George, obviously the testing is part of it. But the other thing we've seen this week as well, the questions over ventilators that the the first 30 ventilators by this new consortium that includes Dyson and McLaren and lots of other British companies were developed. But as Laura said earlier, it was known what was going to be needed if a pandemic hit the UK in the way that it did. And it feels like, yes, this government has made mistakes and has changed several times on testing and herd immunity and all the rest of it, but there's much bigger questions about the UK's manufacturing capability, its industrial policy, its supply chain that have put us in a uniquely troubled position for getting this equipment when needed in such a such short time frame.
2: Yeah, I think that's a very good point. We talked about there about testing, but let's talk about personal protective equipment, which has been a big issue this week, the failure of supplies to reach the front line and ventilators. Well, on the first of those two, it seems that there was the supply, but there was a logistical problem in getting the stuff to the right place at the right time, which in itself is a serious problem, something the NHS should have sorted out. But on the question of ventilators, that again is something of a mystery, that you know, when you have a, a disease like a coronavirus, you know that the weak link in your public health provision is going to be around respiratory problems and the need to have more ventilators. Yes, it was only on March the 17th that Boris Johnson convened a meeting with manufacturers to ask them to step up production of ventilators, something he rather unfortunately called Operation Last Gasp. But, you know, this is Boris Johnson who wrote a biography of Winston Churchill. And what we know about Churchill, of course, is that in the build-up to the Second World War, he was warning from the wilderness that Britain needed to prepare for war, to build up its armories, build up its military equipment for the fight ahead. Well, this is something that Boris Johnson has signally failed to do in his preparation for coronavirus. And I think, you know, when inevitably inquiry takes place into what the government did right and wrong during this whole thing, the fact that the government didn't wake up to the problems that were looming in terms of ventilators, logistics around PPE, personal protective equipment and testing will be at the heart of it.
1: One thing you and I have written about this week, George, is the blame game, which inevitably always happens in politics when things start to get problematic. And There's people very close to Boris Johnson, number 10, who are blaming the civil service for this. And they say that when this crisis began in March, before that, it had been handed over by Dominic Cummings, the Prime Minister's chief advisor, to civil servants to oversee, and they're arguing in private, they are disappointed that more wasn't done to prepare for this in terms of government structures. Of course, you can easily say, well, why weren't the politicians involved in this? It should have been their basis to do this. So there's been a lot of criticism of the cabinet secretary for his lack of domestic experience. You know, Mark said what came up through the foreign policy side of the civil service, and some people saying he doesn't really understand the Treasury, which is very important to this. But then you've also got criticisms of the team around Boris Johnson, the thing we've heard time and time again, that they're campaigners, not governors. They don't really know how to get through a crisis like this. But then also criticisms of the Prime Minister himself, that obviously he is in self-isolation. He's not well at the moment. And there are questions about whether he has a grip on this crisis. and It, it has a slightly chaotic feeling, Politics this week, and I think Matt Hancock, as Laura said, did offer some clarity and outlined the new strategy very coherently. Took lots of questions, but clearly the sense that I've got is the top of government. There's an awful lot of tension there, and everyone feels there will be an inquiry about this. And it just feels to me it will turn into a circular firing squad.
2: Well, I think you've described the tensions really well, and this seems to me to be quite a pivotal week in the whole crisis. You know, last week we had the government announcing its lockdown and eventually having taken the dramatic measures they needed to do social distancing. But we're in the sort of phony war period this week, where we're seeing the numbers of cases increasing, but we're not quite at the point yet where the hospitals are overwhelmed. But there's a sense that the government hasn't done what is needed to protect the health service from the inevitable wave of infections that's heading in the direction of the hospitals. And as a result, the newspaper headlines have been really bad for Boris Johnson this week, warning about this testing fiasco papers like the Daily Telegraph saying lots of questions, no answers. And inside government, you can start to see people say, well, what's gone wrong? Why aren't we ready for this? And you describe there the fact that you know, there's frustration with the civil service. But don't forget, the civil service gets impulse and direction from the top. And then towards the end of February, Boris Johnson famously disappeared from view, went down to Chevening, his grace and favour home. It wasn't a sense of great urgency. So if officials were being asked to prepare for coronavirus they didn't get that steer from the top that they should be giving up their weekends and working around the clock to be preparing for it. But nevertheless, you can understand ministers being frustrated that they're pulling levers from the centre and the levers don't seem to be connected to anything. And they'll be blaming Mark Sebwell, the cabinet secretary and the civil service more generally. Mark Sebwell, as you say, comes from a national security and foreign policy background. So there are people in the Whitehall world who say, well, he's not really as good as Jeremy Hayward, the previous cabinet secretary who had that forensic brain and came from a treasury background. So there's a lot of blame shifting going on. And um, I think that's inevitable when you're working in such a pressurised environment. And we shouldn't forget this, that you mentioned there that Boris Johnson has been quite seriously ill this week. They say he's got mild symptoms, but people inside the system say he has been feeling really bad. You know, his partner, Carrie, is pregnant. The health secretary has been ill. People are working from home. The machine isn't working the way it would do if everyone was working from their desks. So these are really difficult times.
1: Now, let's move from number 10 Downing Street to number 11 Downing Street. And one thing the government's had to deal with this week has been criticisms from small businesses. They are unable to access some of the grand loan schemes the government has set out to help them get through this crisis. Jim Picard, can you just take us through what's happened this week in terms of what Rishi Sunak has had to do? Because he's announced these three grand packages, one to help businesses two to help employees, and three to help the self-employed. But there were a lot of people who were feeling they were getting left out by the schemes, they weren't eligible, and lots of MPs I've spoken to this week have said their post bags have been overflowing with correspondence from small businesses saying, help, I can't survive, and I can't get access to all these schemes the government are
4: offering. Well, Rishi Sunakos has emerged from this crisis as possibly the most popular of cabinet ministers, and partly that is his smooth, self-assured, Manner, But it's also the fact that he is doling out phenomenal amounts of money and it's a kind of role reversal for the Treasury, which is normally the gatekeeper, which says no to every other department when they ask for money. For the last few weeks, the opposite has been happening and the Treasury is now on the hook for something far north of 60 billion quid in terms of rescue package. And Seb, you're right. There's been criticism from some quarters that the scheme set up so far don't cover absolutely everything and everyone but if you look at the scope and the scale of them they are phenomenally big so 95% is the magic number so in terms of self-employed they think they're covering 95% of people in terms of the big business support the loan guarantee scheme so what happened was initially at the beginning of last week Mr Sunak set up loan guarantee schemes aimed at two different groups of companies the first was for large investment grade corporations banking would buy up their commercial paper and they'd get loans that way and the second scheme was for small companies with turnover of under 45 million pounds now what he has done to remedy the gap in the middle there was a lot of outcry from people like the cbi saying well there are loads of companies which aren't investment grade or they're above the 45 million pound turnover threshold for the small companies and this squeezed middle desperately needs help And we're talking about some pretty familiar names. We're talking about airports, ledger companies, some car manufacturers. And so what Rishi came up with last night was a new government loan guarantee scheme, the name of which is too complicated to even pronounce for uh, listeners on the Saturday morning. But that will provide loan guarantees for companies with turnover of up to 500 million quid. So they're hoping that will plug the squeeze middle. And people are telling me that that will therefore mean that 95% of companies will be able to access that. Now, it's like splat the rat, this whole process. Every time you help one group of people, another group pops up. There are still groups seeking help. Yes, the post bags are full. There are groups such as self-employed who pay themselves through dividends and they are not helped under the self-employment income support scheme. They are still knocking at the Treasury's door. It's possible that Rishi could change his mind and do something for them. For the moment, the Treasury is saying to them, no.
1: Because George, I think... It is a very difficult one for the government on this because the acts they're doing to try and save the British economy at this crisis are huge. They're unprecedented, as we've talked about before. But the fact is people are going to fall within the gap. People are going to sadly lose their jobs and businesses are going to collapse. And I think Tory MPs are particularly concerned about this because they see these grand schemes. And when the small businesses in their constituencies can't access them, they start to feel under the heat. But one thing we've got to keep an eye on as well is that these schemes, as Jim just said, are hugely expensive ending these schemes is going to be very, very tough for the Chancellor because at some point they're going to have to start withdrawing these things. Otherwise, the cost of the public purse will just simply get too great. And when Rishi Sunak has to withdraw those schemes, that in itself is going to be really expensive and really complex and very dangerous for the Chancellor, I think.
2: That's certainly true. And Jim mentioned the £60 billion figure. That's the figure we know about so far for the schemes. If they are terminated abruptly after three months, But as you just alluded to there, this is probably going to be something that has to be withdrawn over a a long period of time. Otherwise, suddenly you'll have a number of companies facing a cliff edge when the schemes are withdrawn. And of course, that gets us back to what we were talking about earlier. What is the exit strategy from the current lockdown? Now, if it was possible that we were just going to allow people back out to work, open up all the shops and restaurants and bars and everything else, and we get back to normal very quickly, that would be one thing. The thing that's at the back of everyone's mind, whether it's in government or business, is that once the lockdown ends, isn't there a danger that later in the year, sometime in the autumn or maybe over the winter, the virus returns? And if you're a business on the edge, contemplating three months with no business, and you think that in a few months' time, the same thing could happen again, and there isn't this mass testing available to allow us to quickly stamp out the disease and we have to go into another lockdown, then that could be the final straw. And in that case, as Jim was just suge- suggesting there, the Treasury support for the economy could be quite enormous by the end of it and could be much more open-ended than the three-month period we've been talking about up, up until now.
4: And if you look at it on a macroeconomic level, there are serious economists talking about the deficit for the coming financial year going up to £200 billion. Those with longish memories will remember that the massive deficits that the Tories inherited a decade ago were substantially lower than that. So what that means for the economy for politics, you know, social cohesion going forward does make the mind boggle right now. And just for a cheeky plug, we should obviously say
1: that in the FT Weekend magazine, if you want to know more about Rishi Sunak, then George and I have written a big piece about the Chancellor, which tries to dive in who he is, what makes him tick and how he's going to survive this crisis. Finally, Jim, I want to ask you very briefly about a non-coronavirus-related story this week, the Labour Leadership Contest, which began eons ago at the beginning of this year, before all this crisis, and before we were recording the podcast underneath blankets in our homes. Keir Starmer is widely accepted to become Labour leader on Saturday morning. You've been digging into what that's going to look like, what he's going to do to the Labour leadership, and of course, this prospect that keeps doing the rounds in Westminster, national government. Is there any prospect of there being an offer made to somehow bring him in, involving in the government's planning. So give us your thoughts on what the transition from Jeremy Corbyn to Keir Starmer is going to look like in the next couple of days and weeks.
4: So I think the first obvious thing is that the era of Corbyn is dead and Corbynism is no longer in control. And we are moving into a phase of basically what one calls the soft left It's kind of like Neil Kinnock's sort of level of leftism or maybe Ed Miliband's level of leftism. But don't forget that Keir Starmer has got the support of quite a few left wingers. He has committed himself more or less to the 2017 and 29 manifestos. So if we do see a sort of crab-like shuffle towards the centre ground, it's going to be quite delicate and probably quite slow if, if it really does happen. And the sort of signals coming out of his camper that those who can expect promotion are not necessarily Blairites who have been in the wilderness for the last four or five years. It's going to be people of a similar kind of soft left, compromising nature to Keir, who have not kicked up a fuss and who have not participated in the bitter factional disputes of recent years. But we will see, I think, quite a few high-profile Corbynistas leave the shadow cabinet, not just ones who are leaving with their own volition, like Dan Abbott and John McDonnell, but also other people like Ian Lavery and John Trickett and possibly Richard Bergen, who will be pushed out in favour of some new names. And this issue of a national government is an interesting one because friends of Keir Starmer have told me that he's quite a collegiate guy who sees himself as quite a statesman-like. And therefore, if the call from Boris Johnson came for Labour to participate in some form of national government, they're not expecting it necessarily, but they think it would be quite hard for him to say no at a time of national crisis. And they are currently behind closed doors in separate houses trying to game how on earth they would deal with that offer if it did come. You've got William Hague today saying in The Times that Keir should be brought in for regular briefings. I spoke to Manuel Cortes, who's the General Secretary of the TSFA Union, who's a supporter of Keir Starmer, saying that there should be basically cross-party government. So conversations are taking place even if it is early days and all a little bit opaque still. And that's it for
1: this week's episode. Thank you very much as ever to George, Jim and Laura for joining us. In the meantime, if you'd like what you've heard and like to see some more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. Plenty of our coronavirus journalism is also free to read if you'd like to see a flavour of some of the articles we've been discussing. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder. Until next time, thanks for listening. Stay safe and keep well.